So we're at the we're at the end of John, and uh, I told you at the beginning of the service I am excited. I mentioned to Chas the other day. I said, "Man, isn't this exciting? It's crazy." We went all the way through the book of John. She's like, "Well, I mean, it's been like over a year and a half, and, <laughs> and I don't know if it's that crazy." And I was like, "No, it's definitely crazy." And so I'm excited because as a pastor, like I I have this conviction that we should do. Um, expository preaching. Like it should be verse by verse. It should be moving through the books that every word is profitable and, uh, and good for our teaching. But then that's one thing in theory, but then it's another thing to do it in practice. And so to, to take a, a small book and move through it, that's an accomplishment. But to have a group of people that God has called together who love to feast in this way, it's just such an encouragement. That's what I think is so crazy is that God has really drawn people together around his word, not around uh, a facility, not around a personality. But I really think that what, what most of us truly value is no matter what anything looks like, no matter who's preaching or teaching, no matter the dynamics of, of attendance or kids or, or electricity, and if we're meeting uh, at the refuge or at the divorce, wherever we meet, what we always know we're going to do is we're going to open the word. And I think that that's what has drawn God's people close together. For me, it's refreshing. I do believe that Ephesians 4 is very clear as to what the church should do. It should equip the saints for the work of ministry. It should grow them up to maturity. And the chief way that we do that at Cross Life is through the preaching of the word. Not preaching and then adding the word, but the preaching of the word. And so, it is crazy for me to say that we've done the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel, like, we, we say preach the Gospel, proclaim the Gospel, but to say the Gospel of John, the Gospels are actually a really unique form of literature um, from, from ancient days. And the Gospel literary form is really a biography of a prolific person. So we've been reading the, bio, the, the biography of Jesus this whole time. But it didn't end with his death. Right, that's where we got. We got his death. We saw his resurrection. We looked at all the different ways that they saw and how that led to belief. And now here we are, and we're doing our last one, and we're, we're here at the end of John. But I want you to look at 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 as we start this. 2 Timothy, so it's going to be to your right, closer to the end, still in Paul's letters. Some of the last of Paul's letters, because they're shorter. So that, by the way, is, is why your book, your Bible... Those books are organized in that way. You've got your Gospels, and you've got Acts, which is history, and then you start Paul's letters because Paul contributed the most. I love this. All right, so you got Paul's letters, and Romans is his longest letter, and it goes to his shortest letters. So you're going to keep flipping. You're in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. says, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that's our test as a church is do we really truly believe it? Do we really believe that every single word is breathed out? And that's been part of the journey of John 2. There are passages where we're, we're looking at them and we're going... Well, what does that have to do with us? And the, the relieving, great, wonderful thing is it has nothing to do with us. This is not our story. This is God's story. And so we've been looking at that. Y'all, the Bible, go ahead and be start, start flowing back to John uh, chapter 20. The Bible is God's word that he moved men 
to write about himself for his people to know him more. Did you get all that? That this is God's word, the Bible is God's word, that he moved men to write about himself for his people to know him more. So every word then is important. So all these little scenes at the end, these are, these are his words that he moved men to write so that we can know him more. I titled the sermon, uh, Vignettes of a Resurrected Savior. And vignettes, just so you know, it's a brief description or a scene. So whenever you're watching a show, like a 30 to 45 minute show, and then there's this brief scene, and then the story goes on, and it's just really kind of a short scene, that's a vignette, all right? Or you're, you're uh, looking, uh, what would be another, just a brief description. You are trying to get a brief description of someone. So you're, you're talking to someone uh, about something that happened at work, and you want to describe it just really briefly, you're giving them a vignette. It's just a glimpse. And that's what we have after the resurrection. We have five vignettes. And so different than what we normally do. I normally read the entire passage we're going to cover, and then we break it up. We're going to just do vignette by vignette, right? Each picture, uh, and it's not, man, what do we get out of this? It's really, what do we see of Jesus right here? Because this is his story. This is his biography. It's his life. It's his death. It's resurrection. So y'all join me. It says in John chapter 20, verse 19. This is vignette number one. So glimpse number one or scene number one. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That's our first scene, and then it's going gonna, it's gonna to switch. So what's the context? I'm always going to try and give the context, and then what do we learn of the Lord right here, and, and what's going on in this scene? So the context is, the disciples are they're, they're in a house, and they've got the doors locked for fear of the Jews. Why? Because... Christ had just been crucified and his body's now missing. Okay? So as his body's missing and they're starting to get word of this, there's got to be a lot of fear because if they did that to Jesus Christ, then what in the world would they do to his followers? So it's a very real fear. And so they are huddled. Um, as Brother Bill used to say, they were hunkered in a bunker. Okay? So they're hunkered down. They're fearful that they're going to be found out. If they get found out, then the same thing could happen to them that happened to Jesus Christ. And they honestly don't know what to do anymore because the one whom they followed has been killed and now his body is gone. And that's the context. Now, what do we see of Jesus? That in the midst of a locked house where they are hunkering down really close, in his resurrected state, he is unbound by physical restrictions completely. He still has a very real physical body, but the resurrected body is different than our body. He is able, not just because he's God, but he is, but in his resurrected state, he's able to appear fully in the flesh in their presence. And he says one thing at the very beginning, peace. He came for their peace. So, so number one thing that we see of Jesus is in his resurrected state, he's unbound by physical restrictions. That's, that's something we got to know. He has a very real physical body, but he is unbound by physical restrictions. 
Now, number two, I think this is really important. I already said it. He is there for their peace. This is what we see of Jesus. He goes to his disciples, and it's for their peace. He says, peace be with you. Then he shows them his hands, shows them his side. In other words, saying, hey, guys, I, I, I am. I am the resurrected Lord. You know what I find absolutely interesting, though, is that in his resurrected state, he never loses the scars of our salvation. Even whenever he's exalted in Revelation 5 and he's the lamb who approaches the throne and takes the throne, he's standing as though a lamb that had been slain. So forever and ever, he will bear the marks of our salvation because it's eternal. The work he did was eternal. Before he came to the earth, we can't wrap our heads around this, but in his state, before he came to the earth, he did not bear those marks because the work had not been done yet. But he says, here, here are my hands, here's my sides. And then he says, peace. And what does it say the disciples were? They were glad. And there was joy because he really was the resurrected Christ. He really was the Messiah he said he was going to be. And so here's the effect. The effect is this. That he is there really and truly in this locked room. He has shown up and the result of a resurrected Christ for them and for you is that we have peace. There is enduring peace that he cannot be stopped. Y'all, darkness cannot stop an unstoppable God. And even that, death could not withhold him. So that's what we see. Is that here is Christ. He's completely unbound. So that's the number thing. Uh, number two thing. Number three is this. He's there for their equipping and their commissioning. Okay, so he, he drops into this room suddenly, shows him, he says peace, shows him his hands, shows him his side. He says peace, and then he says this, as the Father sent me, and I went, and I was obedient, now I'm sending you. All right, so how do they go from, from crowding into this room in fear to moving all throughout Acts? Right, And we see, and I've often heard it called, it's called the Acts of the Apostle, and that's the book of Acts. I don't like the Acts of the Apostle. A better term is the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit moved and equipped these men to proclaim. But that's where their emboldening came from, is they saw the resurrected Lord, and He breathed on them the Holy Spirit, and then He said, you better go, because I'm sending you. Right, So He's there for their equipping, He's there for their commissioning. He tells them this really weird phrase. Okay, and the, the phrase has to do, he says, receive the Holy Spirit, because he breathes on them. Okay, let's stop right there. You might be thinking, wait, I thought that they got the Holy Spirit from the day of Pentecost. This is the initiation of what the day of Pentecost will fully become. Okay, so there's a lot going on. We can't unpack it all. Um, we could. It takes us another two years to finally get through John. So we're going to keep what are the big gleanings that we get here. But he breathes on He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Here's really what he's telling them. Preach the forgiveness that I bring. Preach the gospel. If you proclaim the gospel, you're proclaiming, church, the forgiveness of sins because of Christ. And that's in essence what he's saying is, receive the Holy Spirit, now go. Like, go and tell them. And as they receive me, as they believe in me, then you, church, can have confidence to say, then your sins are forgiven. If I'm sitting here having coffee with Mark and Mark's laying out his past and how horrible things are and how he just has this guilt that keeps pervading every thought and he's sitting there and he's great at church and then he goes and he sits privately at home and he's just overwhelmed by this and I say, but did you believe in Christ? Like, is he your savior? And he says, yes. 
You know what I get to proclaim? Like with full confidence? Then your sins are forgiven. And that's so if you forgive them, then I'm going to forgive them. If they follow me, if you call them, if you proclaim the gospel and they believe in me, then they're forgiven. But if they don't choose me, then they're not forgiven. Or if they don't respond to me is what I should say. Sorry. Y'all, so that's the heart of the gospel. That because of Jesus Christ, there is a forgiveness of sins. Let's go into vignette number two. Picks right up. Scene two or glimpse number two. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into um, yeah, and, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Watch this. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So the context, they're hunkering down still, right? But Thomas wasn't with them whenever, he, whenever Jesus first appeared. And they're behind locked doors again and Jesus appears and His first words are peace. Because the presence of Christ in their midst and the presence of Christ in our midst and in our lives will always be peace, be, will always be peace with us. Okay, so what do we see of Jesus here? Again, number one, Jesus is unbound by physical limitations. He's boundless. He's incomparable. In other words, Jesus is going to do whatever Jesus wants to do. He wants to lay down his life. He will lay down his life. He wants to pick up his life. He will pick up his life. He wants to just drop into a locked room. He will. He wants to ascend on high. He will. That Jesus, that incomparable God, is the one who died for us, and he's ours, and we are his. Okay? So keep that in mind, that these are things that we can learn about Jesus because this is his biography. Number two, I really think this is important. He is compassionate in his confrontation with Thomas. I always had a negative view of Thomas. Growing up in the Baptist church, man, don't be a doubting Thomas. You don't want to be a doubting Thomas. And Thomas is, and, and there was almost like this idea whenever I'd read it of, of Jesus saying, come on, Thomas, touch my, put your finger, put your, your fingers in the holes right here and put your hand in my side, like almost condescending, but no, what great compassion. There's nowhere in there that the Lord is ridiculing him. I mean, if we just plainly read Scripture, we can't see that tone of voice. He is compassionate in his confrontation with Thomas. You know what? Thomas doubted for a good reason, because he just saw the Lord crucified and buried. It would be absolutely illogical in his mind to know that Jesus has been risen from the dead and that he just appeared to them in their midst behind locked doors. But you know what? He believes for a greater reason. He, be- he, he disbelieves for a good reason. He, though, believes for a greater reason. He sees the Lord. So he sees Jesus in the flesh. He believes. So this is not the scene of a doubting disciple, which, by the way, let's get honest. Doubting disciples, probably the one that we are most like. Then we're probably most like Peter who runs his mouth way too quickly and tries to get in the way of the Lord. Okay, So doubting Thomas and Peter, probably most like us. In our wickedness, though, we're most like Judas Iscariot. 
willing to trade in the Lord for just another little bit of our flesh. Okay? But this is not the scene of a doubting disciple. This is a scene of triumphing faith. Like this is where faith wins. When we see Christ, and whenever Christ is upheld, and whenever Jesus shows himself, he dispels disbelief. So church, you and I must do something. We must uphold Christ. That's why we gather. That's what, what Mark, whenever Mark is thinking through, through the songs, we're thinking through songs that proclaim the gospel, that hold Christ to the middle of all that we do. Whenever we're, we're meeting as men uh, on Wednesday nights and we're talking through the attributes of God, we're talking about more who He is and how we can't really wrap our heads around that. And we're okay with that because our God is not like us. Like, but we have to uphold Christ. Jesus says that whenever the Son of Man is lifted up, He will draw all men to Himself. And it says that He was talking about His way of death. That whenever He was raised up on the cross, that in raising, being raised up, that He would draw all men and women to Himself. So the church must uphold Christ. As Christ is lifted up, He will draw who He wants to be a part of that congregation, that fellowship. He will draw people from the darkness to the light. This is all His work, but we have to uphold Christ. Now, watch this. This is really exciting. Jesus says that those who have not seen Him yet believe are blessed. You realize that that's us, right? Like He said to Thomas, you know, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who who don't see Me and yet believe. That's who we are across life and believers. We have not seen the Lord in the flesh and yet we have believed. So he's talking about us right there. There's a glimpse of all those who would come after. So, think of this. We're going to look at this very end. He's coming back. We didn't get to see him in the flesh and yet we believe. And we should be spending our lives in such a way that if he were not resurrected, our lives would be vain. And people would pity us. They would think that we're fools. We live such radically different lives. And we've never even seen the empty tomb ourselves. We've seen it in our hearts. We've seen Scripture. Holy Spirit's awakened us. He's made our hearts receptive to it. But we've never seen it. But one day we will be in His presence forevermore. We will see God in His fullness. And we will not be separated. Okay, the next, next passage. This is not a vignette, by the way. John 20, verses 30 and 31. So not a vignette, but it does seem like it was a conclusion to John. And then it kicks back up. So the closest parallel would be, well, what you need to know first off is as, as scholars have looked at all the old texts and all the original manuscripts, it still reads exactly the same. This is not something that someone came in later and added to the book of John John's earliest manuscripts all record this same flow. So the closest parallel I have for you is are the Marvel movies. Seems like the movie ends. You sit through the credits. Oh yeah, there's another scene. Okay, so this seems like the end. And it, it somewhat is, but, but it tells us the purpose of the book. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. I mean, I just, honestly, I want to know who they are. Which are not written in this book. But John says, but these are written, everything that we've read, so that you may believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you want to know why we chose the book of John, that's it. Because John says, look, I wrote this book for one purpose. 
And everything in this book is so that people may know that Jesus is the Christ, He is the Son of God, and that we can believe in Him and have life in His name. Like, the full account is right there. Okay, I do want to know, though, what wasn't written. Because we know that Jesus walked the earth for a while before He was ever ascended. What did He do? We don't know. Vignette number three. Look at us trucking along. There's only five vignettes, and we're on number three. You're wondering when the 20-minute one comes. We'll see. <laughs> Vignette number three. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So here we go. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in, in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. Trent would go as well. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it, or sorry, heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net, the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. I'm sorry, goodness, it was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. There's a lot that we could, could unpack and question and like, how did they not know it was the Lord, even though they knew it was the Lord? How did, what did He look like? But remember, there's that mystery where Mary Magdalene didn't recognize Him. And on the road to Emmaus from Luke 24, I believe is where that is, two disciples didn't recognize Him until He said, I'm Him. I'm He. So, what we know then of the resurrected state of the Lord is that He still, although He's physically in the flesh, He's unbound by any restriction that you and I know and it does seem to have some sort of transfigurative effect on him, but not so much that they can't recognize him anymore. There's a perfection that has taken place. But in his perfected state church, he still bears the scars of our salvation. That is his perfection of making us right with him. So the context is that the disciples, they got to do something. They have to go somewhere. they got to do something. So what are they going to do? It's time to fish. And Peter seems to be the leader. All right, so we see this emergence of, of Peter here. And the other part of the context is Jesus sees him out on the water. So there's this scene. Here's our vignette. That Jesus looks out. He sees him on the water. His disciples are doing only what they know to do now, which is return to fishing. They're not having a good night. Now, Trent would say that anytime you go fishing, even if you don't catch fish, it's a good night. For them, doesn't seem to be a good night. And so Jesus says... Well, you're just fishing in the wrong spot. Fish right over here. Fishing this way. And they do. And their nets are so full that they should break. I believe that it should have happened because Scripture makes note that it doesn't even tear. 
But do you remember whenever he called them to follow him, where he originally met most of them, he walks along the sea and he says, follow me. And he calls them out. It's kind of reminiscent of that. And so, you know, what, what we see of Jesus is this. I love this. He goes to those who had fled from him. Like those who had completely abandoned. Go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. And whenever the soldiers came with torches and clubs and swords, and they were coming to take Jesus prisoner, Jesus stepped up. He said, who are you seeking? And whenever they said Jesus, he said, then let them go. And the soldiers did. Because when Jesus speaks, everyone listens. So the disciples fled from him. The disciples, two of them had come near. Peter and and John are watching a lot of the, the, quote, trial that was taking place. But they're not with him. They're near him, but they're not with him. And so Jesus goes to those who have fled from him. Y'all, what love and mercy. We're talking about the disciples right now. But what love and mercy that those who would deny him, he goes to. What compassion. But if you can imagine just this intimacy. Here's what we see of the Lord. That that he just spends time with those who love him and whom he loves. I think that that's like, I think that's deep enough. Right? There's that old song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Such, such a simple song for kids. But such deep theology for you and me. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves the disciples. This we know because the Bible tells us so. Like, it's just, that's enough. Like, that's what we see of Jesus. His deep love, his deep love, mercy, compassion. He prepares breakfast for them. He sits with them. So this would be like the, the scene that we would see at the end of a show where, where those who are completely disconnected and broken, Jesus prepares a feast, a banqueting table for them. Granted, it's fish and bread on a charcoal fire. And he says, come feast with me. And then it's a really sweet scene. It's a really sweet moment. You know what it tells us of Jesus? He really does love those who love him. He really does love those whom he calls his own. So what it shows us is that Jesus, he goes to those who had fled from him. Vignette number four. When they had finished breakfast, this is John 21 now, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Like more than these that are around. Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. And another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he, Jesus said, to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So the context now is still in the the breakfast scene. And the truth is, we don't know if Jesus and Peter are sitting alone, or we don't know if others are sitting around listening. I always picture that Jesus and Peter are kind of off by themselves now. But Scripture doesn't say that. The others could have been watching this exact moment. They could have been sitting very close. 
And the other context is this is the first recorded moment we have of Jesus with Peter after Peter denied him. Okay? And so what do we see of Jesus? He asked Peter if Peter loves him three times. Kind of reflects the denial of Peter three times. I wonder if that's whenever the grief really struck in. It didn't say he was frustrated that he was asked three times. It says that he was grieved. I think with each time, he feels that implication coming in. But, he asks Peter if Peter loves him, and Peter says, you know I do. And so you know what Jesus does? He commissions him to go do his work. Jesus is not done with Peter. Jesus forgives Peter. I mean, we've got to think through that. This is the guy who stood right there at the charcoal, charcoal fire and denied Jesus three times, just like Jesus said he would. And then it says in Luke that whenever he said, I do not know this man or I'm not with him, it says that Jesus looked at Peter. Their eyes met. Like Jesus knew what had just happened. And then, then we hear the crow. But y'all, Jesus has forgiven Peter and he's not done. I mean, he tells him, in fact, it's so much this way, he doesn't say, well, I forgive you, so get out there and, and try again. He says, then feed my sheep. So Jesus has forgiven him to the degree that Jesus says, then go feed my sheep. Go do the work that I've commissioned you to do. And I'm sitting there, and, and I've read this over and over, and I'm just thinking, how could this be? I mean, how in the world could this all really come about? Because there's been such denial and betrayal. Because Peter's also not just quote, one of the disciples, he's part of Jesus' inner circle. Like, he has spent more intimate time with Jesus. And I'm sitting there, and I'm processing, I'm like, man, how could this be? Because you know what Peter has to be feeling is incredible guilt. He has denied this, this Jesus, this God who has come for him. He's denied it. He watched him hang on the cross alone, and now he sees that he's resurrected. Like, the guilt that must be pressing in of, man, I absolutely failed. And here it is. How in the world could this be? But Christ's death on the cross covered Peter's denial as well. Like the fullness of his cross isn't just for us. It was for Peter's denial just days before. It covered our denials and it covered his. The betrayal that that Peter enacted has been covered by the cross. The blood was spilled for him. It was spilled for us. And Christ's forgiveness is not just for the removal of sins. Right? We love to talk about the removal of sins. But it's also so that we can have an ongoing relationship with Him. It's a twofold thing. And the reason I'm clarifying that to believers is I think sometimes we operate like this. Lord, thank you for forgiving me of my sins. I'm going to try harder. And then we don't want to bother Him. Right? We don't want to... He's a busy God. Like, He's upholding the universe. He speaks stars into existence. He's kind of a big deal. You know, it's because He's such a big deal that we can go to Him. For him to uphold the universe and breathe stars out is just in his very nature. It's not like he's worn out doing this. It's just simply what he does by his very essence. But the removal of our sins was not so that our guilt would be removed. The removal of sins is so that we could be with him. Like there's a twofold thing that happened. We went to a wedding last night and I just, I love weddings so much. So, but we went to a wedding. And there's something really, there, there's a picture there. There's a mysterious picture of, of uh, Christ and the church and, and, uh, and the, the mystery of a bride and a groom coming together and being devoted to one another and, and bearing with one another even whenever things are up. So this is going on during a wedding. 
But whenever they said, I do, and the, the ring went on the finger, and the bride and the groom got to kiss, and they were pronounced man and wife, it wasn't just for that moment alone, but it was for the relationship that endured afterward. Like every day is an I do. Every moment is an I do. Every second is an I do. We were not just forgiven of our sins so that we wouldn't feel bad and we would be clean in that moment. Our sin has been removed so that we could be with God. You, believer, are in a relationship with God. He wants to hear your voice. Like, whenever he forgave Peter, he accepted Peter. You and I, not just forgiven, but accepted is what I'm saying. Like, we are of the brotherhood of Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. We get to stand before the throne in His presence. We have union with Christ. And so as I'm looking at Peter, I'm like, how in the world could this be that Jesus would be so kind to the one who betrayed Him Then I have to remember that the cross is absolutely sufficient, not just for me today, but absolutely instantaneous in that moment for all of His believers for all time. And so whenever he sees Peter, he sees forgiven and he sees acceptance. The work he did was complete. It's an incredible act of mercy and grace and love. That's what we see from Jesus right here in this moment. Grace, mercy, and love. And then Jesus' call to him is exactly the same. He says, follow me. It's going to lead to your death. I'm worth it, so follow me. Vignette number five, the final vignette. Peter turned and saw the disciple. This is verse, uh, sorry, John 21, verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one also who had leaned against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, this would be John, who's writing the gospel, by the way. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Right, Because he was with me. What about this man? What are you going to have him do? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread, among, spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not going to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. And the one who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. This is where John says, I'm, I'm the guy. right? I, I've written these things. It's true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So in this final context, Peter sees John. Like they're still in their, their holy huddle here. Jesus and Peter are having their talk. And Jesus just clarified to him, look, you go do my work. And Peter's like, yeah, but what about that guy? And Jesus says, don't worry about him. You follow me. All right, that's the context. So what do we see of Jesus? Got two things. One, Jesus does not disclose all that he knows, and he doesn't have to because he's God and he's going to do whatever he wants to do. Okay? Number two, though. This is really encouraging for us. He asserts that he will come again. In the final scene, where we're looking at Peter and John, we're really uh, prone to probably miss this thing. He says, until I come again, like I'm coming back. I will return. That's what he says. If it is my will that John remains until I come, then what is that to you? Church, Christ came to the earth. He lived and he died and he is bringing us home. But more than that, he's coming back. Y'all, like he, I'm going to say this again and again here, just in the final moments. He came, he lived, he died. And it's not like you and I just have to go through this life until we finally cross the line and we make it 
Though some of us are going to make it and cross that line before he ever comes back. But Jesus says, there will be a day whenever I'm not waiting on you to cross the line, I'm just coming back to get you. Like, I'm just going to step back into this world and I'm going to call all my saints home. Now, you're probably wondering, when will that be, Ricky? Is it, are we going pre-millennial, post-millennial, all-millennial? When are we going to do all this? Rapture? No rapture? I know, right? <laughs> what we do know is this. Christ is coming for His own. We will be home one day with Him. Either by our going and Him bringing us or His coming and taking us. We don't know the mysteries that belong to Christ. We only know that He's coming back. And whenever He comes back, He's going to gather all of His people from every nation and tribe and tongue from out the entire world. And we're going to come back and we're probably not going to be singing praises and worthy and holiness in our American, our Kansan dialect and language, but every tongue will profess. And we're going to hear all of God's creation in this unique um, not cacophony, I'm sorry. Uh, what's the word? I'm losing it. Cacophony is whenever, what is it whenever all the discord comes together and there's beauty in it? You, harmony. No? Okay, fine. Harmony. There you go. <laughs> that's not the word. Okay, that's not the one that's right here, but I will find it and y'all don't care what it is either. Those who are asleep will be called up into his presence and those who are here will be called up into his presence. He did not come to live and die and then just depart. No. He came, he lived, he died and He's waiting until the Father says, go back. And we're in the waiting right now. So, brothers and sisters, that is what we are awaiting, the return of our King. And we're about to sing and reflect on that. But John's Gospel tells us the biographical, the historical story of an infinite God who took on flesh, who lived a sinless life, and that He would die in our place so that He could redeem a sinful creation. This man God, Jesus, 100% man, 100% God, this mystery, He died a sinner's death so that we could be made righteous this morning. And though He spilled His blood on the cross, He was resurrected and He continued to show His power to His disciples moment after moment after moment. And He claimed that He would come again for us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, may we always remember that our lives are meant to be spent for your glory and not our own. Lord, exalt yourself in our life. Like expand our imagination, expand our hearts so, Lord, that we don't fall in love with little gods, but we fall in love with you more and more. And that in seeing you high and exalted in our lives with this high view of God, Lord, it lowers our view of ourselves and we are propelled to spend our lives for your glory. Because you came and the word took on flesh and dwelt amongst us. And because men love the darkness more than the light, Lord, you were hung on the cross for our sins. And that wasn't the end of the story, but you rose again full of mercy and love and grace and compassion. The same attributes that existed before the cross that, that led you to the cross, it would lead you to lay down your life on our behalf. You continue to display to your early believers and to us today. Lord, may we always remember what it means to be your people. Lord, what it means to be your people is that we are people awaiting the arrival of our King who will usher us into his full presence forevermore. But Lord, may we also not forget that your Holy Spirit dwells within us, the fullness of God with us. Amen.